This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Workers from across the country walked out today at Raven Software in solidarity with employees in Madison who were laid off last week. Twelve contracted employees who work in quality assurance were laid off as part of, quote, studio restructuring, end quote. The studio is owned by video game company Activision Blizzard, which makes the popular Call of Duty video game franchise and is experiencing record profits, according to an earnings call last month. The workers demand that all of the quality assurance contractors, including the ones who were laid off, receive full-time positions and that the company reverses the past week's layoffs. Earlier this summer, Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick was also under fire for allegations of sexual harassment and gender-based pay disparities at the company. Over 1,800 employees signed a petition asking for Kotick to step down, a call that was echoed by the company's shareholders. The walkout currently has no end date. Wisconsin's lieutenant governor's race just got a little more crowded as now a seventh candidate is running in the Republican primary. Will Martin announced he will be joining the already crowded field for lieutenant governor. Martin previously worked for the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority and the Department of Workforce Development during the Walker administration. Martin says his previous administration experience, as well as being a small business owner, would shape his work as lieutenant governor. According to the Associated Press, there are at least six other Republican candidates for the seat, a position that has little power and few responsibilities. At least three Democrats, State Senator Lena Taylor, State Representative David Bowen, and State Representative Sarah Rodriguez are also running for the seat in that primary. Two Democratic state lawmakers have unveiled legislation they say will make Wisconsin more bicycle and pedestrian friendly. The bills come from Senator Melissa Agard of Madison and Representative Christina Shelton of Green Bay. One bill would give local governments more power to increase multimodal transportation locally. The other would make Wisconsin a stop state for individuals who are in pedestrian walkways. In a press release today, Shelton stressed environmental and health benefits that could come from an increase in bike and pedestrian infrastructure and safety. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources will be stepping up its efforts to protect the Connecticut warbler as this species faces population decline. The Connecticut warbler is a migratory songbird that can be found in northern Wisconsin forests during the summer. The species population in the state has declined by nearly 80% over the past 50 years as a result of habitat loss, climate change, development, and other threats. The DNR announced in a press release today that it will be working with local and international partners to protect existing habitat and develop conservation plans for the bird. Unpaid leave began today for staff members not yet vaccinated for COVID-19 at Madison Metropolitan School District. The school board voted in September to require COVID-19 vaccines for all staff. Unvaccinated staff are able to request a medical or religious exemption to avoid unpaid leave. Only 3% of staff, or 151 individuals, are affected by this week's deadline. The Capital Times reports that the enforcement of the policy starts amid a year of of school staffing shortages. Two Dane County Board Supervisors plan to hold a hearing next Monday for public input on the county's mask mandate. This hearing comes from Supervisors Jeff Wygand and Tim Rockwell. They say residents are frustrated at a lack of transparency regarding COVID-19 pandemic masking orders and deserve a forum to express their thoughts on these mandates. 
The hearing comes after the city's and county's public health committee postponed a resolution last week to dismiss the public health order and collect public feedback on it before issuing a new one. That resolution was also written by Wigand. The hearing will be held in person in Mazomani next Monday. Meanwhile, the county's masking requirement is in place through the new year. And now on to today's top stories. Last week, former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice turned 2020 election pro boss Michael Gableman called for the arrest and jailing of two Wisconsin mayors. But Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, one of Gableman's targets, says she's willing to call his bluff. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has the story. Last week, testifying before lawmakers, Gableman finally disclosed information, including last names and pay rates, about some of the staffers assisting in the taxpayer-funded probe into the 2020 presidential election. Gableman, the former state Supreme Court justice turned investigator, is in charge of the operation after being tasked this summer by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to investigate an election that happened now 13 months ago. The investigation comes at taxpayers' expense, about $670,000. During last week's hearing before lawmakers, Gableman criticized private grant money funneled to Wisconsin's five largest cities, Madison, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Racine, and Kenosha. In October 2020, WORT asked Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway how that money was used. So we got a $1.3 million grant from the Center of Tech and Civic Life to assist us with putting on a healthy safe and secure election during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that grant has gone to cover costs like the drop boxes that we're here today to celebrate and the additional costs for printing and mailing for absentee ballots. But last week, Gableman insisted that the money instead installed the center's authority over the election. Those subpoenas were issued to the Wisconsin Election Commission, the mayors of Green Bay, Milwaukee, Kenosha, Racine, and Madison. That is, the five cities that together took an aggregate of around $9 million from the Zuckerberg Foundation in exchange for ceding some of their authority to administer that election. Mayor Rhodes-Conway was originally subpoenaed to testify about the money by Gableman in early October when she was asked to attend a closed-door meeting with Gableman's staff. In a statement made in October, she said that she would gladly testify before anyone within the Capitol but would only do so in an open and public setting. A new subpoena was filed last week by Gableman in Waukesha County, calling for both Mayor Rhodes-Conway and Green Bay Mayor Eric Genrick to be brought before Gableman by the Waukesha County Sheriff for questioning or risk jail time if they refuse. At a public hearing, Gableman explained why he had filed petitions against the two mayors. On this past Monday, November 29, I filed two petitions for writs of attachment in the Circuit Court for Waukesha County against the mayors of Green Bay and Madison, Eric Genrick and Satya Rhodes-Conway. I did so because of all the clerks and of all the mayors, those two simply failed without reason or excuse to appear for their depositions and answer questions about how and to what extent they allowed Mark Zuckerberg's employees to plan and administer their city's election in November 2020. When talking with WORT today, Mayor Rhodes-Conway said that she had attempted to communicate with Gableman's team, but has so far only hit dead ends. We have provided them with numerous documents related to the November 2020 election, and we have communicated um, that there are circumstances in which I'd be happy to talk to uh, folks about 
the uh, November 2020 election and what a great job Madison did running it, uh, but that I firmly believe that that should be in public where the press uh, can watch and where people of Wisconsin can see how their taxpayer dollars are being spent. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says she questions the legitimacy of the threats of jail time. Um, Their latest filing in Waukesha asking the court to ask the sheriff to come and arrest me and take me to jail, you know, sort of rests on whether or not those original subpoenas are valid and what they're asking uh, under them is valid or not. Even if they were, however, it's uh, predicated on the claim that we haven't been cooperative, which I think is just completely false. We have been cooperative. We've provided them with a number of different documents. They have told us specifically um, to hold off that we were not needed to come testify and that they'd be back in touch with us. Our last communication to them was that we understood that and that we awaited hearing from them the details and the circumstances under which we'd agree to come and speak with them. A hearing in Waukesha County Circuit Court is scheduled for about two weeks on December 22nd. Mayor Genrick will be represented by Jeffrey Mandel, founder of the law group Law Forward. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that she's not sure why she and Genrick have been singled out, as the only city to fully comply with his request has been Kenosha. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says she believes it's about intimidation. If you dig a little deeper uh, and ask why all the fuss about what happened in November 2020, um, I think it's obvious that some people are disappointed with the results of that election at the federal level. And I think... um, You know, part of this is probably about trying to discourage people from voting in future elections. Meanwhile, the situation has provided Mayor Rhodes-Conway a fundraising opportunity. In an email obtained by WORT sent last Thursday, Mayor Rhodes-Conway used the investigation to ask for donations. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. As we celebrate the holiday season, local food pantries are reminding people that they can donate their time and resources to support the 1 in 10 Wisconsinites who don't always have enough to eat. Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin's food charities are preparing for a possible spike in demand heading into the holiday season. From the end of federal pandemic aid measures to ongoing supply chain disruptions, Stephanie Dorfman with Feeding Wisconsin says organizations like hers are balancing several factors this year. Feeding Wisconsin coordinates six regional food banks across the state and distributed 86 million pounds of food during the 2021 fiscal year, up 75 percent from 2019. Our food banks across the state are always in need of food funds and friends. A March 2021 report from Feeding America, Feeding Wisconsin's parent organization, predicted more than 10 percent of Wisconsinites, or about 606,000 people, would experience food insecurity this year. That's slightly better than the national average of nearly 13 percent. As local food pantries work to address food insecurity, Nancy Rankus with the Feed My People Food Bank in Eau Claire says these organizations typically prefer cash donations, which allow them more flexibility when stocking their shelves. So it absolutely is much more beneficial to hungry people if we can um, have people make a financial donation versus a food donation unless it's food that would otherwise end up in the landfill. According to its website, Feed My People distributes more than 8.3 million pounds of food annually to 14 counties in western Wisconsin. While it isn't a major concern yet, Rankis adds supply chain disruptions have made getting food to pantries more difficult in recent weeks. We're feeling the impact in really just a couple of different ways. 
and we're cautiously optimistic that it won't become a huge issue, but definitely it's a concern. She notes food aid charities need continued support even past the holidays, as they predict demand will likely remain high well into the new year. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, WRT producer Nate Bregihout went to Rhinedale Park on Madison's east side to talk with people living there the day before eviction. Today, he spoke with Madison Parks Division Assistant Superintendent Lisa Lashinger about the process. Yesterday was the last day that Madison would allow tent camping at Rhinedale Park where at one time over 70 people had been living. The city had tried to evict residents of the park back in May, but many residents remained. Residents I spoke with yesterday were confused about the exact timeline about when they and their belongings needed to be out of the park. Today, I'm talking with Lisa Lassinger, Assistant Superintendent of the City of Madison Parks. Lisa, thank you for talking with me today. Yes, you're welcome. So first, I want to ask you about Rindall today. Were you down there today? Yes, I was. I was out there this morning. What did it look like out there this morning? Um, Well, there are still a large number of tents uh, present in the park, and uh, I know that there were maybe a handful of of individuals who are still camping in the park, Um, and there were also a number of uh, advocates in the park as well. So of the people that are still camping in the park. What is the plan of what is going to happen to them? Uh, We're taking an individualized approach and city staff from Community Development Division as well as outreach partners are working with all individuals known to be staying in the park and trying to work with them individually to meet their needs and help them understand what alternatives there may be for them. So I've sort of stated this a couple of times over the weeks now, but just to re reiterate, where can residents of the park go to get help in these winter months? Um, so I, I, I'm i sorry, I haven't personally followed your coverage, but um, I'm sure you've, you're also aware that the city has put significant resources into helping um, individuals experiencing homelessness uh, to have safe shelter uh, over the winter months. So individuals who had been staying at Rindell were working with, um, were had opportunities and through working with staff from Community Development Division as well as um, outreach partners where a number of them were able to be relocated to the Dairy Drive pallet homes and there is, or pallet structures. And there was also, um, there are 35 hotel rooms nearby that other individuals were able to be located. Um, and then there's also the, the shelters, the Salvation Army and the, the First Street Men's Homeless Shelter that are, are safe indoor options for individuals. 
Have you, when you were down there today, were you able to talk with anyone who was still camping at the park? And have they explained why they are hesitant to go to any of these locations? No, I did not personally talk to people who were hesitant. Um, I know there were some people at the park that are actually at the Dairy Drive location and at the hotel option, and they were, I know they've they've spoken highly of that, but I'll, in my role with parks, I haven't had a lot of individual contact with the people who are camping in the park and trying to help them find solutions. That's something that our community development division staff handles as well as um, in working with our outreach partners. So residents at the park have said that they were confused about when exactly they needed to leave, with some believing it was yesterday and some believing that it was today. What has the city's communication been like with the people living at the park? So our message through outreach partners throughout the fall was that the the encampment was going to be ending soon. Um, In November, we posted, the Parks Division posted signs in the park, notifications that the encampment would be closing as of December 6th. So starting on December 7th, camping in the parks is no longer, in in parks and especially Rindel Park is no longer allowed. Um, And so we've begun our typical process for ending camping and that's notifying the individuals um, that their belongings need to be removed. So in this situation, Today, uh, we did post any remaining property that it needs to be out of the park by Thursday. But um, as as it is, camping is no longer allowed at, at Rindel Park. So if I am correct, you, the Parks Department, had tried to clear people out of the park back in May. What is different between May's attempt at clearing the park to today? We have far more options, sheltered options for people to go to than we did in May. In May, when we went to end the temporary permissible encampment at Rindell, um, options were other outdoor encampments, um, stark weather being the primary one. And since then, the city has invested considerable resources into other shelter options. Um, and if you would like a little more information on that, we can certainly provide that to you. But the, the the dairy drive location and the the hotel option are significant improvements from where we were in May. And we also have the, the shelter options, the First Street Garage and the, the Salvation Army for women. So not I'm sorry, not the First Street Garage, but the First Street, it's the former fleet facility. So the, the men's shelter at um, First Street. So last Friday, city employees went over to the park to dispose of uh, abandoned property, with some items being taken by the city for the people to pick up within 45 days and some things being disposed of on site. Some of the things that were disposed of on site uh, include items with replacement value below $50, perishable items, items that pose a public health risk or are dangerous, and items with no sentimental, legal, or medical value. Now, a lot of those make sense to me, but what is the or what was the reasoning used to determine what was and was not sentimental items? Uh, well, we we and our staff, our staff and our 
contractors who have and are familiar with the policy have to use discretion in what may have sentimental value. But some examples are defined in the ordinance. That may be family photos or a photo from a draw, uh, a drawing from a child, or something along those lines. Um, but it, it's really, at that point, it's up to discretion of the people doing the cleanup if it is deemed to have sentimental value. So now as we sort of start to wrap up a little bit here, I want to shift and ask why is it important for people to not be living at the park there? I think if anybody has followed the Rindle encampment situation throughout the course of the summer, you'd understand that it's it has become unsafe and unsanitary. Um, it's And during the Wisconsin winters, living outdoors is certainly not what is certainly not the ideal solution for anyone. So it's it's important that it comes to an end and that people seek seek safe shelter options. Well, Lisa, thank you for talking with me here today. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to share? No, I don't think so. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, of course. Uh, I've been speaking with Lisa Lassinger, who is the assistant superintendent over at the city of Madison Parks. Lisa, uh, thank you again so much for coming and talking with me today. Yes, you're welcome. You have a nice day, Nate. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call looks back at the Wisconsin Badgers football season and previews its upcoming bowl game. Wildlife Weekly explains the year-round residency of Wisconsin State Bird. And Radio Astronomy pays a visit to a neighbor of our own Milky Way galaxy. But now we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, the publication's Wisconsin Badgers football reporter Cole Wozniak recaps the team's season and their upcoming bowl game in Las Vegas. Overall, in terms of just kind of how Badger fans should look back on this season, I think that it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by Badger football beat writer Cole Wozniak to talk about how the team's season went and what fans should expect next. So the last game that we saw the team play was the Axe game against Minnesota. Can you tell us a little bit about how that game went? Yeah, so obviously going into the game, there were some pretty high expectations for the Badgers um, that they would be able to pull out a win. They had been on this really impressive winning streak, winning... um, I think seven straight games starting um, after the loss against Michigan, who's now in the college football playoff. But after the loss against Michigan, um, Braylon Allen 
um, freshman running back, 17 years old. Everybody's kind of heard that. He started um, getting going. He had seven straight games of 100 yards rushing. The defense was looking dominant in the last seven games. They had huge wins against Iowa and things like that. So coming into the game against Nebraska, they look great as well. So coming into the game in Minneapolis in the Axe game, people, I think most of the people around the country really expected Wisconsin to take care of business. Um, go to another Big Ten championship game, which has been um, pretty standard for standard performance for the Badgers. But um, so going into the game, people thought they would take care of it. And that was not what happened at all in the game. They um, kind of looked they reverted back to some of the issues that they had, had earlier in the season where they were getting out muscled by teams, which is not very characteristic of Wisconsin football the last 20 years. And um the offense is where most of the struggles came from. They only mustered six points offensively. Um, there was a lot of struggles in the passing game, a lot of balls that weren't um, directly thrown to receivers. Um, the running game was having a lot of issues. So they really just looked out physical in the game against Minnesota, which is something that um, we haven't seen for many Wisconsin teams as of late. So the regular season is over, um, but we are recording this on Sunday afternoon and bowl game announcements are starting to come out. What do you think is next for the Badgers this postseason? It was just announced that they will be playing Arizona State and Las Vegas Bowl. I think the Badgers, they're in four right now. If they can get a win here and end their season nine and four, I think that um, Badger fans will look on to the season as a pretty successful, solid um, season for this Wisconsin football program. Um, I know that there were a lot of expectations that this Wisconsin program should um, be contending for a college football playoff spot with how dominant the defense has been, how good they've looked over recent seasons, such as 2019 and things like that. However, um, there's been some struggles offensively and um, there's probably going to be changes made on this, that side of the staff um, in after the season. But I think that if they can write off a win here um, and on December 30th against Arizona state nine win season, I think a lot of fans will look on, back on that pretty positively. However, if they do lose against Arizona State and it's an eight-win eight, eight win season with five losses, I think that there will be a lot of questions raised about um, the direction of this program, not um, concerning the tenure of Paul Christ. He will obviously continue as head coach, but I think that there will be more fever directed towards kind of the offensive staff and whether or not some outside voices need to be brought in. Yeah, so just for Badger fans in general, what do you think they should take away from how this season went? Was there anyone who really stood out to you this year or anything else that you think is important to take a look at? I think in terms of players, the ascension of Braylon Allen as um, a not even just a starting caliber running back, but honestly one of the all-time freshman best freshman seasons that we've seen from Wisconsin tailback outside of um, Anthony Davis, Ron Dane, um, Jonathan Taylor, obviously, but outside of that, Braylon Allen's near the top of, um, especially in terms of recent Wisconsin running backs that we've seen in their freshman seasons. He's only 17 years old, and he um, had a thousand yard season. He only started after I think the fourth game after their loss in Michigan is when he got the starting tailback role, or at least an increased role, and then that kind of developed even further over the last few games. Um, I think his ascension as a player, as somebody who potentially could be um, one of the greatest. Wisconsin running backs, if his career trajectory continues as this, he will be go down as one of the better backs of recent Wisconsin football history. Obviously, that's a lot to put on a 17-year-old, but just if you're tracking out the way that his direction seems to be going, it looks like he is going to be an absolute stud and somebody that Badger fans will um, really be a household name for a lot of Badger fans and um, college football fans in general if he continues on the same trajectory. Other than that, um, 
It's looking like it's going to be Jake Ferguson's last season. Jake Ferguson will go down as one of the best tight ends in Wisconsin football history. Um, he's likely also, he's gotten some um, Shrine Gaming invites, um, Senior Bowl invites. So it's looking like he'll also be a pretty high up round draft pick and things like that. Um, great receiver. He had uh, one of the longest streaks in Wisconsin football history of a catch. I think he broke the school record catching consecutive games and things like that. Um, this defense, I think, um, as it stands right now, they are the best in Wisconsin football history um, in terms of the rushing defense, in terms of yards allowed. Um, since the 1950s was the only time when there was a team that was allowing less um, or similar yards on the ground to opponents' um, rushing attacks. This defense has been phenomenal. The rise of Leo Chanel is um, kind of the go-to playmaker on that side of the football, and then the play of some other people like Jack Sanborn, Nick Herbig. Um, there's some rising stars on that side of the ball, and I think that in um, coming seasons we're going to see some of those guys ascend more and for the ones that are leaving the program, we're going to see them do some pretty impressive things um, in the NFL. Overall, in terms of just kind of how Badger fans should look back on this season, I think that it's a little bit of a mixed bag. That winning streak was one of the most impressive in the country for before this Minnesota game where they kind of did not look as great. They were being talked about as one of the hottest teams in the country in terms of how well it seemed like the offense was putting itself together in terms of the passing attack. They had won games in the Nebraska game. You kind of saw the script flipped a bit where they had relied on the passing game and that was a way in which they won a game. You know, they actually found a way to win games offensively. And I think that people were kind of seeing that sort of take a hold and things like that. But um, I think that positively you look back on some of the, the play, the defense, the rise of Braylon Allen and um, negatively, I think the early losses in the year to games like Penn State, Notre Dame, Michigan, even though the final score in some of those games were kind of not that close besides the Penn State one. I think that honestly, looking back on it, I think that the Badgers had a chance to win all those games and at times looked at like the better team. So I think that it kind of looked at be looked as a little bit of a loss season in terms of how good they were playing on the defensive side of the ball and how good they could have been and how a lot of Badger fans are looking for contention for a college football playoff spot. And even though they, we didn't get that this season, it looked like some parts of the team were on the right track, but some parts such as the passing attack led by Grant Mertz was not. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts about how this season went or how you're expecting the next season to go? I think that this season will be looked on as moderately successful. They had a really strong winning streak. However, expectations at certain points were that this team could contend for college football playoff spot. Everything was supposed to come together. They were supposed to have a great rushing attack, supposed to have a great defense. And then with Graham Mertz and the expectations placed on him, supposed to have a great passing attack. And none of those things came together as better fans would have wanted them to. So I think it'll be sort of a mixed bag. However, it will be labeled as a success. But, um, you know, in coming seasons and in this offseason in particular, I think that there's going to be a lot of soul searching from this um, offensive coaching staff in particular and kind of the way they want this set up. I think there's been a lot of criticism placed at Paul Christ and the offensive staff as being um, maybe too Wisconsin focused, maybe all the guys in the room. The fact that Joe Rudolph played here at Wisconsin is of that same style of offense. Paul Chris played at Wisconsin is of that same style of offense. Maybe that's who needs to be an outside voice coming in. Who's bringing them, even if they, they don't obviously want to shift from this power running attack, just play action, 
type of offense. But I think that a lot of Badger fans will be hoping for some changes to be made on that side of the football and bringing in some outside voices to kind of reinvigorate this passing attack for seasons to come and make sure that it's up to par with the other aspects of the team, such as the rushing attack led by Braylon Allen, the defense led by Leo Chanel, perhaps if he doesn't leave for the NFL, Nick Herbig and players like that, and um, get the passing attack to rise to the level of the other units of the Wisconsin football program. And if that can happen, the Badgers can contend for college football playoff spots. And if that doesn't happen, then they'll probably just be kind of right where they've been over these last few seasons, 9, 10, 11 wins. But if Badger fans will hope for some changes made on the offensive side of the football, bring in some outside voices. And if that changes, then there'll be things that change and we'll kind of have different expectations for how this team is supposed to perform. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Cole. Thanks for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. You can also find links to our podcasts on our website. Our Fall Farewell print edition is out now. Find our digital edition online or on stands near campus. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Though they are usually seen as a spring fling, robins can actually live in Wisconsin all year long. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explores the migratory patterns of robins and what people can do to help care for them in the winter. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about American robins in the wintertime. Now, American robins are here in the state of Wisconsin almost all year round, and that's not something that people think of most often because you think of robins and, well, the first thought that comes to your head is these are a bird that show us the first sign of spring. And while that is definitely true, a number of them are going to come back from migration uh, back into Wisconsin during the breeding periods. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can't survive here necessarily as long as there is good food for them to eat. So I was thinking about American Robins this week because today, actually Tuesday, if it is Wildlife Weekly Tuesday, we released an American Robin. And I know the weather seems like it's a little bit crummy, um, but this was a bird that had come in in October. It had hit a window, uh, had some neurological trauma. Uh, we call it ataxia because they were it was unbalanced and unable to stand and had some open mouth breathing and a couple of internal parasites that we were able to treat. Now, this particular robin, we believe is a female because she's kind of lightly colored and has a nice uh, bright orange breast with some beige kind of uh, coloration to those breast feathers um, and overall really large size uh, and ate very, very well in captivity. As you can imagine, we're giving lots of good food, so fruit and worms and everything else that they eat um, because we were worried about, you know, sending a bird like that off at this time of year when there's lower food availability. 
Now, we've had a little bit of a milder time. I mean, I think this week has been colder than maybe it has been in the last couple of weeks. Um, but there's definitely robins that are still being identified. And the nice thing is you can look up on eBird, which is our citizen science bird site for tracking individual species um, or animals, and specifically birds. And in the state of Wisconsin, we are still seeing reports of robins. So if you look on the range maps of Dane County, for example, we have still seen in the last week robins that are around the Arboretum. Um, we've had some that are a little bit further south than that, like the Jenny and Kyle Preserve. Um, just a number of them in different spots, usually still in flocks. Um, and as long as there is food, again, available for them to eat, and when the ground is frozen, they will switch to berries. So that's where they're going to get most of their calories. Um, that's where you're going to find them. So anywhere that, you know, Arboretum is definitely one I think of because there's lots of fruit bearing trees in the Arboretum. Um, but yes, they can survive and they can be here and people put out food for some songbird species and robins will take advantage of that. So this robin had stored up so much beautiful fat that we felt very good it was going to be able to migrate. Uh, and if you look up some information about their regional stats, you know, are, how many of them are here? Well, if you look on the uh, the regional data from the eBird, you can actually see that about 0.06% uh, of the population seasonally is here in the non-breeding season. So it's really not very many robins, um, but particularly they seem to be more male than female. So the reason that males generally occupy the territory here in the north uh, more often than females is just because the female is going to have to really be um, keen on stocking up more food during the winter time so that in the spring they're ready to have babies. Um, and so the males tend to stick around and keep a territory. Um, so those might be the ones that you're usually seeing more often than not. And I think that's a kind of a neat thing that not a lot of people really think about. Um, normally, they're going to travel together in some loose flocks during the migration periods. They don't really like to be right next to each other, though. So if you've ever seen them spaced out in a little grid pattern, that's that's what they like. And then if we're talking, uh, you know, the fall migration, obviously going south where there's lots of food available. But in the spring, they'll come back. Usually if the males have left, it'll be about two weeks that they arrive before the females do. So really interesting. Um, their patterns are really irregular. People have done uh, GPS monitoring and have tracked their migration of robins. And it's not exactly the easiest thing to say uh, that, you know, it, it's a certain date or a certain time period. We don't know for sure if it's, uh, you know, at a consistent location every time. We consider robins to be what are called nomadic birds. So they wander around kind of not regularly. Um, and you might see one robin in, uh, you know, Wisconsin this year and then the next year, maybe you'll see it uh, somewhere further south in Kansas. Who knows? So it's really interesting. Um, and they fly a lot further than you'd think. The average flight is 38 miles in a day for a robin, which would be like from here to close to Janesville in one day. But if they get really good weather and conditions, they can actually migrate about 100 to 200 miles in a day. And that is incredible. And then sometimes the flocks can be over 60,000 plus. Usually it's going to be about 50 birds, but you'll, you'll see them all in like in one big section, which is just so cool. And they will migrate both at night and during the daytime. So you never know when you're going to find one or when you're going to see one that might be sick or injured that potentially needs rehabilitation. So that's what we know. We know that we have, you know, 
know, robins here, they will still be looking for food. So just be aware that this is the time where we've got frozen ground and they might struggle a bit. You know, if they're a first year hatch year bird, their chances of making a migration or surviving through their first winter is generally about 25%. So, you know, that's not very high. The bird that we released today was definitely an adult. So we feel like it had been through a migration and can choose to go south if it would like to. But be on the lookout, put out some extra food, you know, some fruit and worms. That way they've got something to eat if we do have bad weather. So, you know, lots of things to put at your feeders. We definitely suggest things like dried mealworms, uh, real mealworms, uh, berries such as raspberries, blueberries, blackberries. Um, you know, some of those are a little bit better. Uh, you want to avoid putting out grapes and things because that can be toxic to some other animals. So, so many different choices that you can you can go for, but look it up, see what they eat. Um, you know, the worms are going to have more protein than the berries, but the berries give them lots of sugar and extra energy so that they can survive here uh, during this time period. Okay, well, that's what we've got for today, our uh, segment on Wildlife Weekly about American robins. If you do find one that is in distress and needs help, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Milky Way has a couple of galactic neighbors that hang around and shine dimly in the southern hemisphere's skies. This week on Radio Astronomy, Aaron Lopez takes an excursion to one of them, the Large Magellanic Cloud. Although last week we had little to offer in terms of local astronomy news, this week we have a big story. We'll begin with that first, a surprising discovery about a nearby dwarf galaxy by University of Wisconsin-Madison's very own Elena Dongia and Scott Lucini. Then I'd like to announce a correction to a semi-accurate ode to Washburn Labs, which was also recently published by Local News. Good evening, dear listeners. My name is Aaron Lopez, Mexico-Americane y su local union astronomer. And you're listening to Radio Astronomy. Did you know that our very own Milky Way galaxy has a few nearby dwarf galaxies orbiting us as neighbors? And that is the scientific term, by the way. Dwarf galaxies are galaxies with up to several billions of stars. Now, that might sound like a lot, but the Milky Way itself is home to around 300 billion stars, about 100 times as many. The largest of these orbiting dwarf galaxies is called the Large Magellanic Cloud, or LMC for short. 
It's part of what is beginning to be called the Magellanic Group. It's close enough that it seems to be interacting with the Milky Way, extending from the LMC up away from Milky Way's galactic plane and towards the galactic pole. There is an enormous stream of gas crossing a 100-degree arc across the sky. The stream, appropriately called the Magellanic Stream, is our object of interest for the night. Scott Lucini, a graduate astronomer here at UW-Madison, has been studying the Magellanic Stream together with Professor Elena Dongia, a galactic astronomer at UW-Madison, and with Space Telescope Science Institute scientist Andrew Fox. They are particularly interested in understanding the formation and origins of the Magellanic Clouds. To that end, they've been studying the Magellanic Stream, which has left astronomers puzzled since its discovery in 1965, but is believed to provide clues to the origins of the Large Magellanic Cloud. Using new evidence recovered from the Gaia Space Telescope, Scott Lucini and his team developed state-of-the-art computer models of the Magellanic Stream by making special consideration for the effects of dark matter. The surprising part was that the models brought the stream much closer to the Milky Way, Scott was quoted by science writer Eric Hamilton. The Magellanic Stream appears to be five times closer than previously thought, implying a collision between the Milky Way and the Magellanic Clouds in the astronomically near future. Lucini adds, some have thought the stars are too faint to see because they're too far away, but we now see that the stream is basically at the outer part of the disk of the Milky Way. The collision will be less the violent kind, and more the steady merger kind. We expect gas from the Magellanic Stream will begin merging with the Milky Way in about 50 million years, reigniting the formation of new stars all throughout our galaxy. Next. I'd like to announce some major corrections to a few inaccuracies published in Isthmus, the local newspaper, under the article title Fallen Star. Now, altogether, it's a great article, but there are some key details that are crucial for our department that they be represented accurately. It was published on November 6th, though we only just caught it last week. Washburn Labs, which replaced the so-called Space Astronomy Laboratory, a decade ago, has not closed. According to project manager and graduate astronomer Joshua Upper, the astronomers and engineers there are nearing completion of the RSS near-infrared instrument, which they expect to ship to South Africa by the end of January, pending shipping delays and travel complications due to the recently emerged Omicron variant of COVID-19, of course. After commissioning the instrument on SALT, the South African Large Telescope, there are a number of projects on the horizon through which Washburn Labs will continue to contribute toward the UW Astronomy Department's scientific productivity. Yeah, I have no plans on leaving anytime soon, adds Joshua Upper, who was recently nominated for the prestigious Neil Stebbins Award in recognition of his ongoing and future work. Well, that's it for your local astronomy news. This has been Aaron Lopez, local union astronomer. Hasta la libertad. And you've been listening to Radio Astronomy. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline editor today was Sophie Leahy. 
Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>